Welcome back to the Hemingway List. Book 12, Chapter 11 of War and Peace. How would you react if you were the French soldiers tasked with executing Russian prisoners? Oh, how would you react? It's a really, really hard question, isn't it? Because I don't think we can imagine. I don't think we can put ourselves into that space, in that context, that time and place, and in that position, you know? First question would be, you're a French soldier and you're tasked with executing a Russian prisoner. What happens if you say no? What's the consequences? You know, how severe are they? Are you some kind of like a traitor? Uh, And, uh, yeah, I don't know. Very, very difficult question to answer. Do you think you would react the same as the prisoners being executed or would you fight more? And Pierre pulls away from the factory worker when he clutches at him, but runs over immediately after the boy is shot. Why? The worst bit of that chapter is that after the boy was shot by, was it eight people? Um, and slumped down. Then they chucked him into a pit. Um, and then he was twitching as they were throwing the dirt on. That is the worst bit, the twitching. Like, I know he's dead, right? Like, he's been shot to pieces, but it's just probably like a... a, a uh, what's it called? Like, I don't know. I don't know. Why, why would you be twitching? Like some kind of nervous system reaction. But you're as good as dead. Um, there's no coming back from that. But just that the fact that he was still twitching. Oh, that made me shiver. Um, and the question, would you react the same as the prisoners? Or would you fight more? Again, hard question to answer, but I guess you know, it seems like what you would do is just be in sort of disbelief because that's how people are. We just refuse to believe our own mortality and um, even however however close you get to it, the detail of the boy still trying to get comfortable on his, you know, on on the pole that he was shot against. Um but still in the last seconds just being like, oh, that's not very comfortable on my back, that knot, is uh, such a strange detail. But I think Tolstoy would have based that on real accounts of what most people do in that situation. Uh, Horrible. Absolutely horrible. Pierre pulls away from the factory worker when he clutches at him. I read that already. Um, Anyway, okay, so Brett Peterson said, wow, I hated that chapter. Not that it was a bad chapter from a literary standpoint. I just had vivid pictures of seeing this. This book should come with a PTSD trigger warning, but I guess the word word war in the title should cover that. True. Anyway, I turned my stomach picturing those people getting gunned down. If I were a French soldier tasked with gunning down the Russian prisoners, I would hope I would refuse it as an unlawful order. Although I know this was well before the Geneva Convention, so the law of war wasn't spelled out like it is today. If I were a prisoner in that environment, I would probably act similar. They're surrounded by enemies. There's nowhere to run. Even if you can overpower your captors, I would pray and face my fate. For the last question, I pictured Pierre pulling away as a self-preservation instinct, then running to the boy in an unsuccessful attempt to help him. Tolstoy's description of him breathing as he is buried is so disturbing, and his description of the ones burying them as conscious of their own guilt and so trying to bury the evidence is so visceral. I hated 
and loved this chapter for what it reveals about human nature. Yeah. Well said, Brett Peterson. I think, if I'm not mistaken, Brett Peterson uh, may have a military career himself. Mm, hope I didn't get that confused with someone else. But, um, yeah, definitely triggering, especially if you've got some kind of experience with something like that. Oh, my God. Um, I'd like to think I'd go out kicking and screaming, you know? I mean, if you accept it, you've got no chance, right? If you try to escape... You've got one in a million chance, but it's, I guess that's better than no chance. I guess, I don't know. Really hard question. Um, how helpless would you feel? How, yeah. Uh, Twisted Every Way said, well, we don't know what saved Pierre, but something or someone did. It will be interesting to find out what happened there. I don't remember. You know, I've read the book before, and I don't remember what happened. So, if we find out, I've forgotten. I think we probably do find out, but I can't remember. So, um, I'm interested too. Can't be expected to remember everything about this book, can you? It's bloody huge. In fact, there's so much that still catches me by surprise, even on the second reading, which is cool. Alright, chapter 12. After the execution, Pierre was separated from the rest of the prisoners and placed alone in a small, ruined and befouled church. Toward evening, a non-commissioned officer entered, the, uh, entered with two soldiers and told him that he had been pardoned and would now go to the barracks for the prisoners of war. Without understanding what was said to him, Pierre got up and went with the soldiers. They took him to the upper end of the field, where there were some sheds built of charred planks, beams and battens, and led him into one of them. In the darkness, some twenty different men surrounded Pierre. He looked at them with under, without understanding who they were, why they were there, or what they wanted of him. He heard what they said, but did not understand the meaning of the words, and made no kind of deduction from or application of them. He replied to questions they put to him, but did not consider who was listening to his replies, nor how they would understand them. He, un he looked at their faces and figures, but they all seemed to him equally meaningless. From the moment Pierre had witnessed those terrible murders committed by the men who did not wish to commit them, it was as if the mainspring of his life, on which everything depended and which made everything appear alive, had suddenly been wrenched out and everything had collapsed into a heap of meaningless rubbish. Though he did not acknowledge it to himself, his faith in the right ordering of the universe, in humanity, in his own soul, and in God, had been destroyed. He had experienced this before, but never so strongly as now. With similar doubts had when similar doubts had assailed him before, they had been the result of his own wrongdoing, and at the bottom of his heart he had felt that relief from his despair and from those doubts was to be found within himself, but now he felt that the universe had crumbled before his eyes, and only meaningless ruins remained, and this not only and this not by any fault of his own. He felt that it was not in his power to regain faith in the meaning of life. Around him in the darkness men were standing, and evidently something about him interested them greatly. 
They were telling him something and asking him something. Then they led him away somewhere, and at last he found himself in a corner of the shed among men who were laughing and talking on all sides. Well then, mates, that very prince who... Some voice at the other end of the shed was saying with a strong emphasis on the word who. Sitting silent and motionless on a heap of straw against the wall, Pierre sometimes opened and sometimes closed his eyes. But as soon as he closed them, he saw before him the dreadful face of the factory lad, especially dreadful because of its simplicity, and the faces of the murderers even more dreadful because of their disquiet, and he opened his eyes again and stared vacantly into the darkness around him. Beside him in a stooping position sat a small man, of whose presence he was first made aware by a strong smell of perspiration which came from him every time he moved. This man was doing something to his legs in the darkness, and though Pierre could not see his face, he felt that the man continually glanced at him. On growing used to the darkness, Pierre saw that the man was taking off his leg bands, and the way he did it aroused Pierre's interest. Having unwounded... Sorry... Having unwound the string that tied the band on one leg, he carefully coiled it up and immediately set to work on the other leg, glancing up at Pierre. While one hand hung up the first string, the other was already unwinding the band on the second leg. In this way, having carefully removed the leg bands by deft circular motions of his arm following one another uninterruptedly, the man hung the leg bands up, on some pegs fixed above his head. Then he took out a knife, cut something, closed the knife, placed it under the head of his bed, and, seating himself comfortably, clasped his arms around his lifted knees and fixed his eyes on Pierre. The latter was conscious of something pleasant, comforting, and well-rounded in these deft movements. In the man's well-ordered arrangements, in his corner, and even in his very smell, and he looked at the man without taking his eyes from him. "'You've seen a lot of trouble, sir, hey?' the little man suddenly said." And there was so much kindliness and simplicity in his sing-song voice that Pierre tried to reply, but his jaw trembled, and he felt tears rising to his eyes. The little fellow, giving Pierre no time to betray his confusion, instantly continued in the same pleasant tones. "'Hey, lad, don't fret,' said he, in the tender sing-song caressing voice old Russian peasant women employ. "'Don't fret, friend. Suffer an hour, live for an age. That's how it is, my dear fellow, and here we live.' thank heaven, without offence. Among these folk, too, there were good men, as well as bad, said he. And still speaking, he turned on his knees on his knees with a supple movement, got up, coughed, and went off to another part of the shed. Hey, you rascal, Pierre heard the same kind voice saying at the other end of the shed. So you've come, you rascal. She remembers. Now, now, that'll do. And the soldier, pushing away a little dog that was jumping up at him, returned to his place and sat down, his hands... Oh, sorry, in his hands he had something wrapped in a rag. Here, eat a bit, sir, said he, resuming his former respectful tone as he unwrapped and offered Pierre some baked potatoes. We had soup for dinner and the potatoes are grand. Pierre had not eaten all day and the smell of the potatoes seemed extremely pleasant to him. He thanked the soldier and began to eat. Well, are they all right? said the soldier with a smile. You should do like this. He took a potato, drew out his clasped knife, clasp knife, cut the potato into two equal halves on the palm of his hand, sprinkled some salt on it from the rag, and handed it to Pierre. The potatoes are grand, he said once more. Eat some like that. Pierre thought he had never eaten anything that tasted better. 
Oh, I'm all right, said he, but why did they shoot those poor fellows? The last one was hardly twenty. Tst, tst, said the little man. Ah, what a sin, what a sin, he added quickly. And as if his words were always waiting ready in his mouth and flew out involuntarily, he went on, How was it, sir, that you stayed in Moscow? I didn't think they would come so soon. I stayed accidentally, replied Pierre. And how did they arrest you, dear lad, at your house? No, I went to look at the fire and they arrested me there and tried me as an incendiary. Where there's law, there's injustice, put in the little man. And have you been here long? Pierre asked as he munched the last of the potato. I, uh, it was last Sunday they took me out of a hospital in Moscow. Why, are you a soldier then? Yes, we are soldiers of the Apsheron Regiment. I was dying of fever. We weren't told anything. There were some twenty of us lying there. We had no idea, never guessed at all. And do you feel sad here? Pierre inquired. How can one help it, lad? My name is Platon, and the surname is Karateyev, he added, evidently wishing to make it easier for Pierre to address him. They call me Little Falcon in the regiment. How is one to help feeling sad? Moscow, she's the mother of cities. How can one see all this and not feel sad? But the maggot gnaws the cabbage, yet dies first. That's what the old folks used to tell us, he added rapidly. What? What did you say? asked Pierre. Who? I? said Karateyev. I say things happen not as we plan, but as God judges, he replied, thinking that he was repeating what he had said before, and immediately continued, Well, and you, have you a family estate, sir, and a house? So you have abundance, then, and a housewife? And your old parents, are they still living? he asked. And though it was too dark for Pierre to see, he felt that a suppressed smile of kindliness puckered the soldier's lips as he put these questions. He seemed grieved that Pierre had no parents, especially that he had no mother. A wife for counsel, a mother-in-law for welcome, but there's none as dear as one's own mother, said he. Well, and have you little ones? He went on asking. Again, Pierre's negative answers seemed to distress him, and he hastened to add, Never mind, you're young folks, and pl you are young folks yet, and please, God may still have some. The great thing is to live in harmony. But it's all the same now, Pierre could not help saying. Ah, my dear fellow, rejoined Karatev, Never decline a prison or a beggar's sack. He seated himself more comfortably and coughed, evidently preparing to tell a long story. Well, my dear fellow, I was still living at home, he began. We had a well-to-do homestead. Plenty of land. We peasants lived well, and our house was one to thank God for. When father and we went out mowing, there were seven of us. We lived well. We were real peasants, so it so happened. And Platon Karatev told a long story of how he had gone into someone's copse to take wood, how he had been caught by the keeper, had been tried, flogged and sent to serve as a soldier. Well, lad, in a smile changed the tone of his voice. We thought it was a misfortune, but it turned out a blessing. If it had not been for my sin, my brother would have had to go as a soldier, but he, my younger brother, had five little ones, while I, you see, only left a wife behind. We had a little girl, but... God took her before I went as a soldier. I came home on leave, and I'll tell you how it was. I look and see that they are living better than before. The yard, full of cattle, the women at home, two brothers away earning wages, and only Michael, the youngest at home. Father, he says, all my children are the same to me. It hurts the same whichever finger gets bitten. But if Platon hadn't been shaved for a soldier, Michael would have had to go. Called us all to him, and 
Will you believe it? Placed us in front of the icons. Michael, he says, come here and bow down to his feet. And you, young woman, you bow down too. And you, grandchildren, also bow down before him. Do you understand? He says, that's how it is, dear fellow. Fate looks for a head. But we are always judging. That's not well. That's not, out. That's not right. Our luck is like water in a dragnet. You pull at it and it bulges, but when you've drawn it out, it's empty. That's how it is. And Platon shifted his head. Sorry. And Platon shifted his seat on the straw. After a short silence, he rose. Well, I think you must be sleepy, said he, and began rapidly crossing himself and repeating, Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Saint Nicholas, Frula and Lavra. Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Saint Nicholas, Frula and Lavra. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and save us, he concluded, then bowed to the ground, got up, sighed, and sat down again on his heap of straw. That's the way. Lay me down like a stone, O God, and raise me up like a loaf, he muttered, as he lay down, pulling his coat over him. What prayer was that you were saying? asked Pierre. Hey? murmured Platon, who had almost fallen asleep. What was I saying? I was praying. Don't you pray? Yes, I do, said Pierre, but what was that you said, Frola and Lavra? Oh, well, of course, replied Platon quickly. The horses, saints. One must pity the animals too. Hey, the rascal. Now you've curled up and got warm. You daughter of a bitch, said Karatiev, touching the dog that lay at his feet. And again, turning over, he fell asleep immediately. Sounds of crying and screaming came from somewhere in the distance outside, and flames were visible through the cracks of the shed. But inside, it was quiet and dark. For a long time, Pierre did not sleep, but lay with eyes open in the darkness, listening to the regular snoring of Platon who lay beside him, and he felt that the world that had been shattered once was once more stirring in his soul with a new beauty and on new and unshakable foundations. All right, there we go. There's another chapter for you. Pierre has made a new friend in an unlikely place. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.